Hello, my fellow music lovers. I'm Allison Hagendorf, and welcome to the show. This is where we celebrate the universal love of music and the rock and roll spirit that lives in each of us. I'd love for you to hit the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube or follow the show if you're listening. I'm so glad you're here. My guest today is the Grammy-winning producer, songwriter, and co-founder of Linkin Park, Mike Shinoda. We talk all about this new era of his solo music, how his love of rock started with rap, and what he learned from Rick Rubin. He shares Linkin Park stories you haven't heard before, the possibility of a reunion, and we bond over our mutual love of Mr. Rogers. And stay tuned after the interview for my sound advice. New music you need to know. It all starts now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I want to congratulate you on this new era of Mike Shinoda. It hey, is. It thank is. you. All right. The haircut announcement. <laughs> I mean, that was fresh. I think that the the every time I change my hair, for some reason, my fans, Linkin Park fans are like, what are you putting out? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just changing my hair. So that being the case, this time I did, I did it intentionally. But like before, I was just like, there have been times in the last like three or four years where I've just gotten a haircut and they're right. like, is music coming? I'm like, no, I just got my hair. <laughs> I Meanwhile, I, I'm upset not to see it today, but I know that's a very high maintenance look. Yeah, I did to- for the, when we, when we, for those who don't know, I, when I released this new song, I had shaved. Um, well, I couldn't do it. I had a barber shave these like lines into yeah. my head. Um, what had happened before that was I was just doing like it was the equivalent of like Tumblr blogs of like <laughs> images. Like yeah. I just collected all these yeah. cool images that I liked, and um, it was like a mood board. It was, and I was, I was because I was kind of just trying to like, I don't know. I feel like the the I was putting out a new song. I didn't want to just do that like i wanted to dive deeper into like the release of it and like almost like the world do more like world building underneath it which sounds conceptual but it wasn't it wasn't like a there aren't like characters and like fictional narratives and whatever it was just vibes i just wanted to create more vibes and share more of the vibes as the song came out um almost more like a gallery art show yes. like you go and you're just like soaking in oh this is like what this person is communicating right so the song is one piece of that and then there's all this other stuff and part of that i like saw a great picture of the lines in the head i was like oh that's so cool and i just decided to do it um and uh, yeah we shot some great photos and it's like i've never put so much like emphasis on a photo shoot mm-hmm. 
I mean, not anytime recently as I did. But on it was a moment. One. It really is a moment. I mean, you've been working so prolifically with other artists and, and writing with and producing for. So this was really, you know, your moment. I feel like it's your first song Dude. that you've done completely by yourself. To, doing to Starting this conversation with this part of it is such a red herring. It's like, <laughs> this is like... Okay, let me let me recalibrate us real quick. Okay. You, you're you're, okay. you're running this interview, I'm like and I'm just like I'm like getting I'm it's like <laughs> I'm being like uh, I don't know I'm like micromanaging your go for show. It. Look, this is a you're safe space. You're gonna let space. me do that. Go ahead, go ahead. Why, what, what, what I hope would... people are watching. It's like I watch Allison all the time. She's the greatest. Who does Mike think he is? <laughs> like coming in and being like, let well, me only change the subject. I really know like you're your background as an artist, yeah, and a yeah, multifaceted yeah. artist. And I always know every time you put out a song, I always know the artist you're working with. So, so for me, yeah. I recognize, okay, this is a moment for Mike. It's been a minute since he's completely, you've played every instrument, right, right. wrote, produced. I mean, this is literally you. I, yeah, so and I, I kept, truly understand I, that. I, yeah. I, I, so the context of that, yeah, you. That's that's correct. I spent the last few years like I'd say like five-ish years ago, I was um, starting to write more with other people. I spent a few years doing that. And then, um, you know, 2020 happened. And then as we, even during that time, I was like doing Zoom sessions with people mm -hmm. and like, you know, it was, there was some of it that was like, I want to write with this really interesting artist who, uh, an artist like, um, Lynn from Paris uh, or, yeah. or K Flay or G flip or, oh, these are all women. Um, did I grandson, work with any guys? Grandson Swaco. and Swaco. Okay, great. So we, now we've got, a, like, <laughs> I got you. Yeah. I know everything. Yeah. I know everything you were. So, on. so work, you know, those and others. And, um, e you know, some, a, a lot of stuff didn't come out, a, you know, a bunch of stuff did. I ended up like, I feel like I started to realize that I was working in a capacity where I was doing the best I could to make great stuff for them. And it was, but it was their song, mm -hmm. like it, you know, and I also realized, oh man, I, I, the things that I have worked on for myself, like the song happy endings, yep. it was a bit of an experiment. It was like, oh, you know, um, I did it with Taylor Upsall and, um, Ian Dior. I barely knew Taylor at the time and I didn't really know Ian at the time. And we had all kind of just like, it had all just kind of come together and put it out and it did very well. Um, but it was a very much sonically and lyrically and everything. It was very much a departure, right? Like it was, it wasn't core to what people think of me as or Lincoln park or whatever. And so that's why it was fun. So, yeah. So I looked, I was looking back at all that, like, a later part of, night of last year and realizing, oh man, I haven't done anything lately in years. That's just been me. Yeah. Like just like from beginning to end, I wrote it. I like wrote all the instruments and did all the stuff. And it's, there's no feature. There's no features vocally. Nobody else is like putting in their two cents on any of the, you know, any of the parts. And yeah. so that's what already over became I think that was one reason why it was exciting is because it was like, you know, just me.
it's so exciting. And and the reaction has already been so positive. I mean, it's climbing yeah. up the radio charts, most alternative and rock. I mean, when this is happening, how does this feel for you to know that you're sort of entering into this new chapter? Like, where's your headspace at? I, the thing, I'll tell you the thing that was the most um, notable or, or exciting to me right off the bat was when I put, when I started putting things up on socials and we put up something on YouTube, the comments underneath the, the old, I feel like it's a lot of the old school fans were showing up and saying, this is my favorite thing you've done in a while. Like they were like, I feel the thing that I, the thing that I love about Lincoln park and about you is in this song. And I think that's because it's, it's more obvious to them or it's in their, in a greater percentage or something because it, there wasn't anybody else involved. Yeah. I think that's why. So I like that. I mean, that was a, to me, that was like almost like if this was a video game, that would be the first checkpoint. Uh, right? You get yeah. to that checkpoint. You're like, damn, I got, you know, that was good. Yeah. That's I mean, it's, I love this song. I cool, love it. And I've been following everything you've been doing. And I Thank get you. it because you're such a multifaceted artist as a producer, writer. Like you don't, you can, you could do really anything sonically, genre wise. You've always been defying genre. So that's not a I thing. I like to hear that, but I don't, I don't agree with that. I feel like there's like, I feel like there's, I, what I learned in, in playing and writing with so many people in the last few years is I go, there are, a, I realize there's a lot of things that I'm capable of doing, but I'm not necessarily capable of doing them super well. Right. So it's almost like I realize I can yeah. get in my own way because I go, I, I am capable with a thing, but I really like it probably would be better to hand it over to somebody else. So I started doing that more. And then I learned more about how great people do the thing. Yes. Um, I got to sit in with people who are incredible at, at specific instruments, people who are incredible with um, pop songwriting, which I was like, I'm, I'm very familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have my, but I have my way. Like yeah. I have my, I have my, like when you grow up in a band, we like I started Lincoln Park with a friend of mine named Mark um, in like when we were probably like 19. It was the two of us making little demos. I had like a drum machine and a sampler. He had a guitar and a little amp that was this big and yeah. no bass. We rented a bass or we just played it on keyboard. No drums. I just programmed those. That was zero, which zero. became Hybrid Theory, which became yeah. Lincoln Park. and. um Growing up from those stages to being like on a stage in front of people, you you make up your like you you invent the way you do things in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Like you 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 come into experiments that go well, and you go, oh that that went well. I should do that again. And then once you do it a bunch of times, you you inevitably end up at this is the way I do things. Yeah, I get that. For sure. I was going to ask you, and you kind of answered it, but I want to kind of go back to that because you have spent so much time with other artists Mm. in the studio. And a lot of these cases, you've kind of mentored them. They're Mm. younger artists. Yeah. But I'm sure you also learned so much from them because the way the landscape is now is a completely different day than when you were first coming on. Yeah. I think there's some things about like the shape of a day of songwriting that was I learned a lot about how other people approach 
starting a song from scratch, um, especially people that do it, that, that that's their primary job. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like Linkin Park, we always um, wrote our own stuff, played our own stuff and learned to, I learned to produce our stuff um, initially with, with uh, Don Gilmore and then I actually, at the end of that period, I found out that I was producing. I didn't even know I was producing. Right. I found out I was producing. And then we worked with Rick Rubin. And Rick was the one who said, yeah, you're the producer in the band. And I went, I'm what? And then it was like, once I got that I concept in my head, I went, okay, I, I have to get better at this then, then better at the task of producing. So I learned as much as I could. Once I learned that there were people that specialized in like little pieces of the process. Like I learned that there's, there are people out there that just produce vocals. Right. They don't produce the song. They don't write the vocals. They just sit, they record you and they get the best, per, they get the best performance out of you. And then they take that home with them and they make it sound yeah. great. And that can be, a, that means a lot of different things. Um, but to know that somebody specializes in something so specific made me question, well, like, Am I good at vocal production? Like, I don't know. I've never spent two weeks perfecting a person's vocal. But once I like dissected it a bit, I was like, that's actually something I I really love to do. And I think I do it really well. It's just been part of my process that I didn't isolate in my mind. Well, because you guys were literally DIY creating something from nothing and doing it all autonomously. Yeah. You had to assume position and become good at things simply because you didn't have access or re- or you didn't even realize you were producing. I love that Rick we, Rubin's like, by the way, you're a producer. We were, yeah, we were just <laughs> doing, we were just being a band. We were just right. doing things. And we knew that we didn't, I knew, I think we all knew, we didn't do, there were things that people think of when they think of a band that we didn't do as well. So like people think of like, I found out at some point that Rage Against the Machine did their first album. Like they basically came in and like knocked it out in a week or two. Yeah. Like just sat in a room and like and all the mics played, on these plates. Played, right? yes. We have never been good at that. We suck at that. Like Linkin Park was always much more of a, it was almost more of a hip hop approach yeah. or like a modern alternative kind of approach where we would write into the computer and use the computer to structure and finish the song. And continue to add more parts, continue to edit, continue to add. It it would be this, it would never be even two people doing like recording and writing at once. It would be, it'd be like, I have an idea for a part. Here, let's put it in the song. I think that's what was so unique and groundbreaking about the band and the timing of it, because you came from more of a hip hop. Yeah. background like yeah. that like rewinding for a second isn't that yeah. really what you were raised on isn't that what you listened to yeah i mean so my parents listened to god what would you even call it like soft rock or something like they listened to it was like there'd be like orchestral like instrumentals or like very chill and cheesy like ballads and crap like that like what kind what artists was the station called K-Earth? Did you ever hear about that? I don't know. Is it like Yacht I Rock? I vaguely remember. So Yacht Rock would be too much energy. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, this stuff okay, was okay, so, okay. so sleepy. And it Yacht was Rock's too hard. All love yeah. songs. Every okay. single song was a corny love song. 
Okay. My dad actually, sh- shout out to my dad. This is something people probably don't know. He's like this Japanese man. Um, he's a first generation born in the, in the U.S., so he's Nisei, and he he loved reggae. That's my great. dad was like, That's that was the, the weird, the one weird thing that he listened to was was Bob Marley. But and who doesn't love Bob Marley? I mean, I I think that's right. Like, but, I don't know but, one person who doesn't like my, reggae. My mom but, wouldn't right. put Bob Marley on, is the okay. point. She okay. put on that sleepy I other see. stuff. I see. Um, by the way, when she was young, she liked the El- she liked the Beatles and Elvis and whatever. She, when okay. she was young, she liked young people music for her generation, right? But as she got older, she just, like, it was on in the background. She Loved wasn't her like, love songs. I... In the context of all of this, I heard um, License to Ill by the Beastie Boys, and I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. This is incredible. And I went down the the path of like, I went down all the Def Jam records and all that hip hop that was happening at the time. And then I was like, oh, wait, this Beastie Boys song samples Led Zeppelin, samples the ocean. This Beastie Boys song samples uh, Jimi Hendrix. And- other rap songs too. I was finding out like what they sampled and I loved the sound of those things. So I went deep. I think I went deep on like what would have been called at the time classic rock. Even back then they yeah. called it classic rock. Um, before I listened to anything that was modern rock. So I love that your introduction to rock was through hip hop sampling. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And by the way, it was going back to Rick Rubin. A lot of right. it was guys like Rick yes. who- came from a, like they listened to a lot of rock and metal and then they started like finding ways to implement it or integrate it into the rap stuff they were making. Yeah. When you finally got to work with Rick on your own music, was that a weird full circle moment for you that you grew up listening to his records that he produced and then you're actually working with him on yeah, your own music? Yeah, like a lot of my favorite records of all time like I don't I don't have like a stock list of what they are but I would say that when we started working with Rick if I were to write out a top 10 his records would probably sit in five of those spaces wow yeah right like understandable yeah the Beastie Boys and Run DMC stuff Public Enemy and then even into like like Slayer and stuff like that yeah. like um I I thought that what he was doing on the Chili Peppers records was incredible like he 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 had so many albums that I just loved and it took me, yeah, it took me a while. It took me definitely weeks, maybe even months to like really get comfortable working with him. Mm-hmm, I bet. It was fine. Like I was playing it cool, right? But you're still a little out of body. In yeah. My, yeah. Inside, I'm kind of like freaking but out yeah, that I'm working fan. with Rick. Yeah. yeah. Besides learning that you were a producer from Rick, what else did he teach you or did you did you learn from working with him? That was one of the great yeah. things about working with him was that it was not just about the music. Like it was about life and it was about like being an artist, like in, in general, the fundamentals of like, well, what's important to you? Why, why do you get up in the morning and obsess over this? Have you thought about that? And, you know, and also like, how do you cultivate your, your like artistic spirit in a way that not only like like gives you the best foundation to make good stuff, but also to be happy mm-hmm. and be healthy. Um, I've met artists since that I realize like, oh, a, a lot of their driving um, 
the things that drive them are out of control. Mm -hmm. So like I may like people, I've met people who are like, they're doing it because they want to be famous. That's an easy one or want money. Um, other people are doing it because they've got like issues from the past that they're trying to reconcile and they're doing it through their music to try and like, they don't, they aren't addressing the issues Yeah, and it's coming out in the music and the music's like helping them with it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's usually, to me, that's usually positive, but there's right. other people that do it in a way where it's like, you ever met, I'm sure you've met people who they make a song on a drug yeah. And then they think they have to make every song on that yes. drug. Yes. Because they're like, but I made I made 20 songs. They didn't do well. But the one song I did on uh, yeah. this, like it did well. So yeah. now I gotta do every song on it. And you're like, that doesn't that, <laughs> I see why that seems logical to you. Yes. I'm yeah. I think that's probably not your best plan. Yeah. Right. Probably not the best plan. Not the best plan. Yeah, it's always like the it's always like the slightly older artists who are like, I tried that and yeah. it really didn't end well. Yeah, been there. And it's strange to me that I did that because every artist I watched growing up did the same thing. Yes, exactly. And it didn't end well. That was a bad idea. When you were in school forming <laughs> Zero, tell me about that process of forming the band and also, sort of side note, were you, did you know Incubus? Cause I feel like you guys were at neighboring high schools kind I'm, of. I'm, I'm just going to tell you off the bat, I'm going to do my very best since it's you that I'm talking to. I'm going to do my very best to give you either like more rare pieces of information <laughs> or cause these stories, I feel bad sometimes for a Linkin Park fan who listens to these interviews because it's like. I've been doing it for so long. I've told all the stories. Like they know all this. They can tell the stories for me. So with that said, I'm glad you said the incubus thing because that's a weird. That is a weird it's one. It's a weird like detail um, to the, 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 almost like the environment that we were growing up in um, here in the, in the San Fernando Valley and, and all that. So if, if, if you're not familiar with LA, like the North side there's like a hill where there's like, there's like Beverly Hills and then there's this big like this like hill, like almost like a mountain. And on the other side, there's the San Fernando Valley and it stretches all the way from Pasadena. I, my In my definition, it stretches all the way from Pasadena up to like past Calabasas and Simi Valley and all that. And we were up towards that side where it was um, Agora Hills, Westlake and Calabasas. And at the time, Calabasas wasn't like Drake and Kanye. <laughs> Calabasas was like was like cookie cutter homes with like middle class people who were doing fine. They were doing well, you know, it was starting to become upper middle class, but you'd see like, you know, 10 people pick up their family in like a, like an, like an affordable Lexus. And you're like, damn, like, look at all. Wow. I, when I moved there, I was like, look at all these, we call them Lexi. <laughs> look at all the Lexi. The Cause there were so many of them. Right. Like, right. Damn. These people got these people got money and we were like driving like a Honda. I'm like, damn, someday we're going to have a Lexus. Um, the, when I was in, I think it was probably like sophomore, junior year of high school. I heard about Incubus. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this band is like doing really well. And they're from here. Like um, they got signed. I think they got signed to Immortal Records. I don't know if they had been signed before that. 
and they're putting they're making an album and then it came out and it was on on the radio locally um and i saw i saw so the actually some of the guys i forget how it worked were they like a brother in hubastank or like a oh no is audio slave not audio slave uh, audio something or other um there were three bands all happening around the same time as us, three other bands. And it was it was Incubus who was already like signed and putting out stuff. Hoobastank who was on their way. And then there was the brothers of Incubus whose band name I'm forgetting right now, but somebody will comment it. Um, and everybody was like, you could see each other at house parties. Like I oh, went to a great. house party where I think Mikey from Incubus showed up. I think maybe one of the other guys did. Um, Hoobastank played on a, um, on what the year is this now? 90, I'm going to say four summer of it's 94, so good. might be in that summer of 94. Oh, such a so great Incubus time would have probably, Incubus would have been too big to play somebody's backyard. Right. Um, it was my friend's backyard, by the way, it wasn't like some ran, it was like my friend and they had a pool and there was concrete by the pool and they set up in the concrete and um, you want to know how different of a time it was. Incubus covered ministry at this wow. show. It wasn't like soft, like yeah. alternative ballads. <laughs> totally. it, they were playing ministry. This is yeah. like heavy industrial. And I was like, damn, he's like that guitar. He's really fast. Yeah. Um, and we were going to the Roxy and Whiskey and all that to see all of these bands. And, and then we found out, oh, there's this band System of a Downs coming out too. And they're from Glendale. And I think they got signed to Rick Rubin and blah, blah, blah. Like it was, a, that was our, that was the scene. That's pretty awesome. That was happening up and down the, the valley. That's incredible. Yeah. Also interesting that both you and Incubus have a DJ, you know, yeah. that also is another parallel. That was ha That was another thing that it was like, so, so to put that in context, a lot, I think that like people who were critical of that time, like, a, a, you know, when, whenever, a, a like a bit of a trend starts to happen, you start to see multiple bands or groups or artists doing the same or similar things. People get kind of like raise their eyebrows at it as they should. Um, I, I remember for me, um, I I didn't love rock bands, modern rock bands at the time, until I started to see them incorporating hip hop. Like m my friend Mark, who I started Zero yes. with, Mark played me Rage Against the Machine. He's like, I heard this new band. You're going to like this. The dude doesn't sing at all. He only raps. Yeah. And I was like, let me hear it. And I loved it. And then it was like, I got into, uh, I found out about some more bands that had some of that in it from, you know, Chili Peppers to, there was a soundtrack called Judgment Night. Oh, there one was, of the greatest. So great. One of the greatest, um, yeah. Totally underrated for how influential it was. The opening yes. track was by Helmet and House of Pain. Yes. Incredible. Amazing. Such a, such a good song. Um, and then um, I remembered like, when people started, when I started to hear groups like Corn and Limp Biscuit and other and Deftones and others start to bring in pieces of it, but be very, um, I, I thought with Corn and Deftones in particular, I was like, wow, they're doing something so they're taking a lot of risks. Yes. Like they're doing it so different. Um, and I liked the idea of oh, this is like it reminded me of 
when rap was very open, this is a weird connection to make, but there was a time when you might have like a gangster rap group and a hippie rap group and a other types yes. of things doing way like the difference between NWA and then later De La Soul was really dramatic. Dramatic. It's such a huge difference. Yeah. And I was starting to feel like, oh, this is happening in rock. Like I know what this is and I like this. And it means that the like playing field is really open for us. So we can start to integrate our version of what this mixture means. And so that's how we really started to focus in on like the sound of our band. I that's think. incredible. Was there a moment when you're like, okay, we got our sound? Because it wasn't easy for you guys. Didn't you guys showcase like 50 times? Like, wasn't it difficult to get that first opportunity? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's um, before before we met Chester, Mark was our singer. We showcased for every major and every independent label, um, and they effectively passed. And then we parted ways with Mark. He was having a hard time being a singer. Uh, he was much, he loved music. He was good at writing. He was much better at managing, it turned mm -hmm. out. And that's what he ended up doing. He actually manages a bunch of the bands that we were talking about um, and um, has done very well doing that. And then we found Chester. And when we first met Chester, um, he, he hadn't really, it took us a minute to like really click I think we were just all like green mm -hmm. and like a little nervous. And and to be honest, like I, a, a few of us, myself included, like we take a while to warm up to people. Right. It's just how, how I am. Plus he was um, the outsider because all of you had known each different. other. He yeah. was very different. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know Phoenix or right, bass right, player right, super right, right, well. Right. I knew Rob okay. I knew Joe and Brad yeah. well. Um, and then, yeah, when Chester came in the band, he was very um, – he would, he was a chameleon. Like he was very, he was a very good singer, but he could sing in a lot of different styles. And one minute he'd be singing like Dave gone from Depeche Mode. And the next minute he was doing like a Perry Farrell thing. And the next minute it was something else. Like you, you could literally call out a singer and he'd, That's he'd interesting. adjust to sound more like them. And so the goal was in the beginning, and this is where if I had known it was called producing, that's, I would know that's what I was doing, but I didn't know. I was just figuring it out with him as we went, Yeah, which is, hey, dude, like you, right now we don't, we're still figuring out our signature everything. Like what's our signature sound as a band? What's your signature sound as a vocalist? And so let's, I love the thing you did on this song. Let's make this other song a little more like that because that feels like you. Aww. When you sing it the other way, it feels more like you're trying to be this person right. that we both love. Yes. We love their music. But we need our but own they're, sound. You're, they've already drawn a fence around that territory. Like that's not, we can't live over there. We got to live in our own house. It was a process. Was there a moment where like, oh my God, we have our own thing? There were probably moments that were like, you know, landmark, yeah. like jumps forward in that way. but. I don't think of the, I can't think of them. Like I always think of it as more of a slow. Yeah. Like coming into focus. Came into it, right. Yeah. Speaking of soundtracks, the first time I ever heard Linkin Park was actually on the Dracula 2000 soundtrack. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Jesus. I was a Sony. I was hoping it was going to be like. <laughs> You know, this really, I went to a show and you no. guys crushed. I'll tell that you would why. That so ideal. I'll tell you why. Like I, was, I lived in New York. 
I'm a okay. New Yorker. Okay. So I was not part of this scene at all. I was in New York and I was a Sony college rep and Dracula 2000 soundtrack was one of the Sony priorities. Yeah. And on it was like System of a Down, yeah. Saliva, you know, uh, Marilyn Manson. And One Step Closer was on it. Mm. And I will never forget, I had my the CD in my car, in my CD player. Yeah. And that came on and I literally pulled over and I was like, what wow, is that's this? that's cool. Okay, that is One cool. One Step Closer stood out from all the other songs on that soundtrack. Mm. And that's when I became obsessed. And specifically, the Shut Up in the Bridge, which I think wasn't, the, how did that come about? Because I think we talked about that before. We had written the riff. So Brad wrote the riff when we were just like hanging out and sh we were shooting some pictures that we were going to put on, like use on something of ours. But it was like our friend, like with his little snapshot cameras in like Joe's apartment's garage. Okay. So it wasn't at a, uh, right. some fan, like we were nobody. Um, and Brad had had was doodling this like little thing. And I remember him sitting and he was, he had a Honda Accord and he was in the back he was in the passenger side back seat, just sitting with the door open. And he's like, what do you think of this? And I was like, dude, that's incredible. Like he had a little recorder and I was like, put it on, make sure you don't lose that. Put it on your little recorder. And then we came back to it and I, so he wrote the main riff and then I wrote the chorus riff based on his riff. And then I can't, I think I wrote the bridge riff, but I can't remember if we wrote that together. Um, so there's a possibility it's one or the other. And I did the like tracking of like the sketch out of like, okay, this is how the drums will go. This is how the bass will go and taught it to the other guys and so on. So fast forward to like being in the studio, working on this thing. Um, we, I remembered like we, we started working with Don Gilmore and we got this rapport with him where he was comfortable enough to like send us back to the drawing board on things mm -hmm. and we wouldn't like freak out. And that was a song where he was like, I, it's going to be, the track is the best thing about it. Like keep working on it. And we got really frustrated. Like he kept sending us back and he was being, he was focused on something else. So he was being very dismissive and we were getting pissed. And so the lyrics yes. of it are very reactive to how I say like he was being like a rude, like it was like there was a rudeness in our minds to it. It's just like, fuck that guy. and. By the time we nailed the verse and the chorus, he was like, yeah, I think that's right. But, you know, what are you going to do in the most, that big part, the bridge? And I remembered sitting in the lounge where we were writing, which is separate from the area where they were, they were recording something else. And we were at Chester and I were in the lounge trying to figure this out. And I, I said to him, what do you think about just saying, shut up? And he's <laughs> like, he was like, like just saying it. I was like, no, you'd like scream it. But like, yeah. just that, like nothing big. I was like, you know, that rage against the machine song was like, fuck you. I want to do what you tell me, me. Yeah. like that. And he's like, Oh, like that is, that's going to be great. Like he was like, I'm pumped. That's Let's a do great that. reference. So was it that rage part that it was inspired that? Rage that? Part. I was like, well, that rage part is so iconic. So iconic. And like, Anthemic. I want to do something like that. Like when we play it at the Roxy, yes. people are going to fucking tear the yes. place apart. And he was like, that's the part. And he <sighs> knew, we both knew immediately that that was the best part of the song. It was going to be incredible. Yeah. And he had never even, he had, he was screaming on other stuff, but he, he hadn't done it on that song yet. And we told Don, we walked in, we were like, wrap it up. 
like what the, this guitar thing you guys are doing, like stop. <laughs> like get ready for this. Get yes. the mic up. Like yeah. we got you got to hear this thing. And he's like, like he was like still so focused. Yeah. And he did what we said and put we put Chester on the mic. And on the very first take, it was the shape. It was made. I don't know if we kept the very first take, but the very first take was exactly what you <sighs> feel when you hear the song. And Don like freaked out. He was yeah. running around the room. He's like, oh my God. Like everybody knew it, it was I, like special. I have chills. It the was sh- shut up when I'm talking yeah, to you. It was incredible. I mean, even on my way here, I put it on the car and I'm here I am doing it. Like literally, <laughs> that's your Raging Against the Machine moment. And that was yeah, really, yeah, yeah. I think that's what got me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I, what made me pull my car over. I loved, I loved that. I loved, I loved the 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 way they did that, and and by the way, there were other bands like I know, like we referenced Deftones and Corn, and and a lot of other bands that at the time were had come out, you know, after Rage. Um, and there was, yeah, I feel like there was a lot of really good references for that type of thing, but we wanted to do. I felt like the shut up thing was actually. I did we have I said this before? Um, my mom. Like shut up was a bad word in our house. Mm-hmm. Like it was like there, there's the words you can say and the words yeah. you're not allowed to say. And right on the other side of that line was shut up. And we were like, really? Like sh- shut up. It's like a bad word. She's like, I don't want to hear it in my house. So in my house, you weren't allowed to say that you yelled at if you said that. And so, of course, that this was made defiance. It. When my yeah. mom heard that song for the first time, she, that was her joke immediate. She's like, of course, this is yes. the bridge of your first song. Like, of course. Of course, that's what you do. <laughs> oh my God, I love that backstory. <laughs> it was such an exciting time in the late 90s, though. I think you're right. I think Rage was one of the pioneers kind of of it. But then it really oh. became this this movement. It really yeah. was. It was called New Metal or whatever you yeah. want to call it. What was the vibe like at the time? Was there a community? Was it competitive? Were you friends with these other bands? It was all those things. Yeah. Yeah, you'd find, like we found little friendships with different people um, sometimes we get along with specific people in bands. I know we did a bunch of tours with Taproot. Yes. Um, we did, you know, we, we spent some time with Deftones, um, in the beginning, I think in the beginning with them, it was very competitive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, and that wasn't like our intention. That wasn't our fault. Um, it's just that one step closer came out and it yeah. did really, really well right off the bat. And we were opening for them and they were like, who the hell are these new kids like effectively the, their attitude was like, who are these new kids beating us at radio? And, and then it just we're kept the, going with more and we're songs. we're the headliners. Songs, right. right. And that was just the beginning. That's a, that's a, <laughs> I, I felt, and what Chino and I have talked about that since, like we're, we're definitely very cool. He's incredible. He's, yeah, he's such amazing. a good dude. Yeah. Um, and by the way, he has like the best taste. That was like one of the things that I always thought was so cool about them is that, that they, the things that he listened to and like always talked about, um, he was such like a tastemaker in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he told, he, he, he talked longer about Chardet than he would about like Slayer. Right. And that's cool. Yeah. And that was something that I thought I related to, cause that's how we talked about music. So many different influences and new and very knowledgeable about when, them. when we, yeah. when people asked us, what's, what's Linkin Park sound like, what's your band sound like? We tell them the roots, Portishead, Deftones, and Aphex Twin. That's fantastic. And they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. That's like, doesn't make any sense at all. We're like, well, do you know who those bands are? And they'd be like, no. But that's <laughs> why you made such a mark. And the fact that in a hybrid theory, it was not just one step closer. It was so many songs. Mm. And of course, in the end, I mean, 
to this day, I think that's your most streamed song. Yeah, it's one of it's like always, one of, always like one of. It's like yeah, the, I think it's top though. Yeah, I think that's the top. It's like, and at the time, of course, you would have no idea that it would have reached that magnitude. But did you set out to do it? Did you set out to say we are going to have our own sound and we are going to change history? I mean, it's crazy no. what you guys accomplished with that album. Yeah, no, we yeah. would not. We wouldn't have been so bold mm-hmm. to say that. But our, I think our goal was like. So we did have a lot of different goals. Maybe this is good like for like if you're young. I I tell young artists if I if I speak to like a college class mm-hmm. or, or um if I'm in a studio with somebody like one thing that we did I want to say we did this we've always done this. I've always done this. Um is I don't really consider something to be part of an album unless i would be comfortable with it being a single or it the, like the label getting behind it or people hearing it and getting behind it there I, i've seen when it, way too many groups and artists put out songs because other people told them that it was a hit and they don't love the song they're just like well i just i just want my career to do well yeah. like i want to pay the bills so yeah. like if they say this is a hit if they say we need to put so and so as a feature on it, if they so, that, like letting people to make all those other decisions, I, I'm 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 I understand when it's like sometimes those things are very convincing, and you want to and you want to experiment, right? Yeah. Like you want to take a risk and do something that's outside of your comfort comfort zone. That's fine. Like that's and you and I don't ever knock somebody for that because I've done the same thing. Um, but there are definitely moments when you go. Somebody says, we think you should do this. And your gut reaction is that is a bad idea. I don't like it. And then you go along with it anyway because of mm-hmm. some external yeah. external reason and you regret it later. That's really good advice. Yeah. We didn't do that on hybrid. We didn't. We have. I want to say we haven't done that on any of our records. There may have been like s- subtle places where one of the guys in the band would say like, I think we wiggled. Like mm-hmm. I think we, I, I think say, we, yeah. I think we didn't all agree on a thing, and so it wiggled its way into the album somehow. Um, but certainly, there's no place on any of our records, and I can say this with like pretty good, pretty, pretty confidently. There's no place on our rec, any of our records, as Lincoln Park or solo, where I, I fundamentally did not like something, and it's on the record. Okay, like. I don't give a shit if if the like radio department says it's the biggest thing in the world. Like if I don't like it, it's not going there. That's great. That's... And they probably wouldn't have heard it. If mm-hmm. I don't like it, they pr- I probably would have never played Brought it, for it them. to them. Right, yeah. exactly. When Hybrid Theory took off, your lives changed forever. It was it was meteoric, sort of pun intended right there. Yeah. But um how did you handle it? I mean, was it exciting? Was it overwhelming? It was also a weird time because the landscape started to change from rock to pop mm. with 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 boy bands and all the you know the juxtaposition of like yeah huge rock movement but also pop and you were both equally popular that's sort of unique to that time there yeah there, it was like the last time it, it was it was there hasn't been a time since where rock has been as big as it exactly was exactly right um at the same time pop was like and by pop i mean like aggressively pop yes. like shiny and and safe and 
engineered to be an earworm pop was like having a huge moment. Um, there wasn't anything like I, when I hear pop stuff these days, it's much more integrated and, yeah. and like, it's much more tasteful to be mm -hmm. honest than the stuff that I was hearing back then. Right. Um, and there were also limited channels. Yeah. There's like, there were tastemakers who were breaking things and meaning they were making them popular. TRL existed. Yeah. Right. So I watched TRL. I, I avoided TRL. And when I did see it, I hated it. Mm -hmm. I was like, this, these kids are these screaming, frenetic yeah. fanaticism is creepy to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I get that it's like the most important thing, but meaning it would, if you get on it, you will win. Like you're going to be popular the, the moment that you're on this show. And then I started to see groups that I liked go on it. And I was like, oh my God, like, okay, so hold on a second. Like this show can like has room for these other things. And the people are just as excited to see Jay-Z as they are to see Britney Spears. Like I had to wrap my head around that. And we ended up getting invited to go to the show. And I was, and I just kind of like, went along for the experience. I will tell you, I've never heard something so loud. Oh they, the format of the show was, you know, dozens and dozens of people placed immediately next to you screaming as loud as they can to like, you know, violently, violently, <laughs> violently yeah. express their fanaticism about everything that's happening. And then you've got a host who's literally talking like this and he's got an earpiece and they're screaming as loud as they can, that's but he's wild. just, you know. That's wild. It was surreal. It wasn't, didn't feel like a real thing. I'm like even just taking this along because I'm picturing myself there and that's just wild. It, yeah, there's never been anything like it. It's sort of the point of no return. It's like once you've experienced that and then you just, you guys even catapulted even further into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, there, so yeah, by the end of the, that, that album cycle, as we were getting into writing Meteora, they, they, management told us that we had the biggest album on the planet Yeah, that year. And it didn't, that didn't sound like a real thing. It didn't sound like a real like piece of information. Um, and as we digested it, just because there were so many other things that seemed like they were so big that we couldn't. We knew our thing. We knew hybrid theory and our tour and all those things had done well. Um, but we couldn't, I personally couldn't imagine us being in, in, like in the same, on the same level as like a Britney Spears and all of the like, I don't remember if it was exactly like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and all that, but all that stuff was really big. I was grateful for you guys because I did not like any of that pop stuff at yeah, all. I was not a fan. At all. Yeah. And I was grateful that you guys were holding it down. And I will say, actually, just just to say it, like to address, I, I don't know that we've ever that I've ever like directly addressed that weird moment because we we were trying not only we were in all of the same conversations as all those groups. So I don't even know what the modern like equivalent would be, but you're we were there trying to hold on to some shred of credibility right. and integrity. Not from just, I mean, including what people think of us, but what we think of ourselves. And to show up at a, an award show 
can be mentioned in the same breath as all of these these what we considered to be manufactured pop acts. Um, it brought questions about our like was the Lincoln Park manufactured by somebody and whatever. We're like we built this like ourselves, yeah, from scratch. Like, they had <laughs> they had expensive and and like tested. Uh, songwriters and producers, like if you played a guitar on that record, like you were in sessions every day for decades. Like the like, best ever. Everybody yeah. was like, it was math and it was lots of money and they assembled these great things and they won. And we made it ourselves and managed to stand on the same podium with them. And we were very insecure about it. And so, because also there were these rumors going around that we, that it was fake and we knew that was not, we knew that it wasn't fake, but we had to like address it. And so we'd go to this, like, for example, an award show and one of those groups would get an award and we were just like so insecure. We'd just sit, people are like standing up, clapping, and we'd just sit there because we didn't want a single picture of us taken celebrating that thing as if we were in the same category. Yeah. Right? I totally get that. It was so so I I say that as like almost like I say that as sincerely an apology <laughs> to those people because it's not their fault. Right, like they right, were just doing right, their thing. Right. And I watched an episode of uh I don't my last I yeah. watched this episode of Hot Ones with uh -huh. um with uh InSync the other day. Okay. That just came out recently. And um there was a lot of moments in it where it was like taking me back to that time period. And I'm like, these are not, these are nice boys. Like, these are, <laughs> are likable guys. They're lovely not, lads. They're not yeah. demons. No, they're no. not industry puppets. They're just singers you know trying to do their thing. It's just that when you lived through that time and you were literally the artist, I was a fan. There was this juxtaposition of holding on to the, of the credible autonomous art. There was yeah. music and there was music product. And they're both enjoyable in different ways. But yeah. for those of us who love the dirt and the, the edginess and the authenticity, we saw it vanishing out of the mainstream. So you guys were really holding it down. You played a huge role. And then we went into the 2000s and it was even harder and harder. But like that, there was this juxtaposition at that time. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Huge juxtaposition. The, 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 I remember when for a long time, like if I liked, if, if, when I was in high school, if I loved, I could love a band and then I'd see their patch on somebody's backpack or their sticker oh, the on somebody's thing. Yeah. And it was somebody that I, it was like some like vapid cheerleader, like just like who, I remember seeing this girl with a Green Day yeah. patch on her backpack and I was like, number one, she knows one song. Number two, I hate Green Day now. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Green Day, but like she's ruining it. Yeah. I don't want to go to the show and see her there. I can't stand her. And as a function of like, I don't know, the way this culture works, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Yeah. Not Green Day's fault. We ended up in that position, right? Like right. where it's like, oh, okay. So now there are literally like people that I wouldn't hang out with at our shows. And I'm going... Is that fair of me to do that? Like, that's not cool. Like, yeah. there's nothing wrong with being a cheerleader. There's nothing wrong with being into, like, you know, these other pop groups and whatever. Like, it's just different people. And then it expanded way beyond that to, like, yes. oh, now I'm in 
Um, it was pop culture. Well, we then we started traveling overseas. So then you're in a very, you're in an entire country of people that are unfamiliar with culture that's unfamiliar. I remember when we played Malaysia for the first time, and this is a Muslim country that we look out in the in the crowd and there are um, like 14, 15, 16 year old, tons of kids and all of the girls have a hijab um, there and they're like really hype, but there's like certain things they can't, they, they don't, culturally they don't yeah. do. We learned that you can't, um, show the bottoms of your feet to people in certain countries because it's root. It's like giving them the middle finger. Wow. So they're like when you're sitting in an interview or if you're playing on stage and you walk up on this thing, like when you do it, try not to jump and put your feet out because if they get a picture of you putting your feet out at people, it looks- Disrespectful. It looks disrespectful. And we're like, oh my God, the world is such a bigger place than we imagine. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's this awesome com- um, commonality and there's all this stuff you don't know. And we got it, you know, like we ran the gauntlet with it. We had to experience it very quickly and adapt very quickly. You guys catapulted into this global superstardom. Was was there difficulties that came with that? How did you all handle that? Or did you love it? And you're like, I can't believe we're here. I mean, the probably the best thing the most important thing um, that happened around that time between like somewhere, you know, around the first three albums was that the guys t- in, ma- made, they're very intentional about checking each other. That's great. And sig- also like just being reflective and, and, saying realizing that our lives had fundamentally changed and because of that new the new like place that we were all at we were getting also starting to get older and looking to get you know people we, some of us were starting to get married and like thinking about kids and this is all happening in the context of this band that's like gone from being something you do on the on Saturday night at my yeah. apartment to like you're headlining every festival anywhere you go. And so they, it took, you know, it took the culture of the six guys and and some of the people around us to like really um, encourage like, I, I don't, I think mental health is like such a goofy, it's become such a goofy phrase. It kind of makes me like, I don't know. I know that's a weird, I know that's a weird thing to say because, but the thing is that when people, when some people start using words like that over and over and over and they they attribute, like they put a huge, it's a mental health becomes a huge basket and all this other stuff falls yeah. into it. And some of the things that people put into it are not all that helpful yeah. or they don't actually mean very much. Um, it gets frustrating to me when I think about that time and I, that, that when we were starting to realize that our lives had fundamentally changed and I think about mental health, we never would have called it mental health. We never would have had very much um, definition around the things we were doing to make ourselves, to keep ourselves healthy. We just like did them as a function of community. Like it was like, Hey, I feel like, like, are you tired? Like, I feel like you're like, kind of like, should we take it easy tonight? Cause like, I feel like it's been a big week for you. Stuff like like, that. When your friend says that and they're like, it's not just like, Hey, you should, or I'm no, it's like, I'm going to change my 
thing that's going on, my schedule, to make things easier for you because I feel like your uh, cup is kind of empty. Yeah. We would do that. Like everybody in the band would do that for each other all Mm -hmm. the time. I mean, this advantage of being in a band, I mean, for solo artists who are really alone, you know, and they're doing it all themselves. I had the most fortunate experience when you guys were doing the One More Light album. I got to be in the studio with you guys and Mm. to sit with all of you and listen to these new songs and this different, this new direction. Mm. And it was one of my favorite experiences. I don't feel like you and I haven't had a chance to talk about it, but it was one of those days that I cherish. It really was so special. Um, and I remember, I loved every song. I loved this new direction. Mm. I know it was also a new chapter for you guys. I think it was the first time you had other songwriters as part of the process. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember specifically hearing One More Light and tearing up in the studio with you guys. And then, of course, tragically, that song took on a whole other level after mm. Chester's passing. All all of the music does. It's through a, through a different yeah. lens, you know. How does when you perform these songs, you uh, know, like you recently hopped up on stage with G Flip in Australia. In Australia, you just performed with all of these players yeah. performing the music. How have what's this process been like for you to be able to perform the music? Um, yeah, it depends with, on the song. It depends on the song, I'm sure. It depends on the yeah. song. Um, I did on my solo tour, like that was, I think, in different points of time. In different points of time, it's been a different like intention. And and so for example, jumping on stage with G Flip, that was just I was just partying with a friend. Like I, love I was that. just G was I was in Australia, it was their show, and I wanted to I just wanted to come. I just wanted to watch. And G was like, Do you want to jump on stage? That's for what a you, that's what they said. That's and awesome. I was like, I was like, I'm down. Like, what do you want to do though? <laughs> yeah, because we've we wrote we we wrote I think we've written twa- two things, I think. And neither of them was like, they didn't, ma- it, it didn't make the record. Like the, the songs on, on their record is, are better than the song this, that we wrote. Um, and I loved um, the single Worst Person Alive. So good. And G was like, will you jump up for Worst Person Alive? I was like, dude, that's my song. So like, good. I love that song. It's so, so good. So we, we, that was the plan. And then. I think they were like, do you want to do something? Like, could you do like a rap verse or something? And that's how that started the whole, it was just like natural. Totally. Can you do something of yours during my song? And I was like, yes. And it became like, let's just also tag it into like in the end a little bit. Um, It's funny because that, so that was very celebratory and just organic. And just, we just did what felt good. Um, back a few years earlier, I had done a, a tour called post-traumatic. Yep. Um, and that was much more about catharsis and like facing all that scary shit of Chester's passing and everything head on. And so when I did that, when I was in London, I had two of my favorite co-writers from the record, um, live in London, John Green and Egg White. Mm-hmm. Um, Egg's real name is Francis. Right. He goes, <laughs> he goes by Egg White. His friends call <laughs> him Egg best. White. His friends yeah. call him Egg White in school. It's a great nickname. Um, they were av- around, they were available to come sing those songs. And I did, and I had written um, One More Light with Egg. And so um, we sang it and it was very, it's a very different song now. Like when we wrote it, um, 
as you know, like when we wrote it, it was about a woman that we knew, that I knew who had passed away, who worked for the label, who had worked on our stuff. And she's this like super wonderful, sweet person. And like everyone at the label loved her. And she she got cancer and she passed away. And Egg was in town for a very short time to write with us. And the funeral was on one of those days. And Brad and I were like, okay, we can't. Like I, I was like, I feel we're, we need to have like, we need to respect Egg and we need to respect her. Like what, like, I think he and I had agreed together. You write with Egg. I'll represent us all at the funeral. And so he went there that day and I wrote with Egg that day. And that's why we wrote that song. I was wow. like, it feels stupid to like, I feel bad that I'm not there at the funeral. So like, I feel like I have to, Yeah. like doing this is like my way of being there in a sense. And honoring her, And it course. became- it became like the name of the album. Yeah. Yeah. That song. Wow. I remember literally sitting there with you guys tearing up. It I mean, was it was rough. Yeah. yeah. But also like, you know, I think, um, I think that some of those songs, like I know, I've talked about this before a little bit, but there are some times when I'm writing and mo I think most, um, experienced songwriters would say a similar thing. There are times when I feel like the song itself is like showing up and it's in the room and it's declaring its presence. Like it doesn't, it becomes easy to write it. The words are obvious when you find them. The melodies are, everything is natural. And it's not that it's can be it doesn't have to be fast it's just that it when you when you feel it you know yeah i have had that on all, almost i think all the songs we've talked about i had that on in the end i had that on i mean some of them was we didn't talk about breaking the habit was very much that way um uh yeah definitely one more light and 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 those are the times when um, I, I re I know, like I realize that some of the process of writing a song is me and like my skill set and my experience and my craftsmanship and like carefully getting this thing into shape for people to experience. And for me to go like, yeah, this is the nucleus. This is the like most, um, I don't know. I don't want to say perfect, but like this is the best I can do with this idea. Mm -hmm. This yes. is this is as good as I can get it, and I'm ready for you to experience it and hear it. Um, that's part of the process. But the other part of the process is just like magic. It's just yeah. in the room. It yes. just doesn't it's doesn't like care. Letting it free. Yeah. And, yeah. and some people believe that actually, if you don't, if that that you might start a thing like that and take it as far as it can go or even fail at bringing it to life. And then that exact same song will go to somebody else and they'll have a better relationship with it. Mm -hmm. They'll have a more pure or more, or more true. Well, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. It's like you present it as your gift. I don't mean with a fan. I mean another artist. 
Like I've heard people say, you ever heard people where they call, like two different artists will come up with the same song yes. at the same time or like same album name or same movie yeah. or same, all these things happen at the same time. Sometimes that's because of like weird industry crap. Yeah. Ch- <laughs> there's some chitter chatter, some people chat, yeah. you know, talking when they shouldn't talk. <laughs> there are times when I've, when, when I've, I've experienced where, where someone will say to me, I'll play someone a song. And they will say, oh my God, like I was just in a session with somebody else this week. Like you wrote wow. that, you wrote this three days ago. I was with somebody three days ago, four days ago, two days ago, yeah. whatever. And we had like, check out how similar the idea so interesting. is. Just because it's in the ether. Yeah. Wow. Maybe it's nothing. I just, I to me, I feel like if whether or not that has any bearing on reality, I do think that like, you know, your voice and your relationship with the song is that connection is special because of the something you can't control. Yeah. You can be the best songwriter in the world, but you're not going to force that relationship between you and that song to work. Absolutely. It's like a cosmic connection. It really is. Like, like Elton John and, or I guess Bernie Taupin. Yeah. And like, or like, Lennon and McCartney yep. had shitty songs mm-hmm. and they had, inc- they had world, they had life changing songs life too, changing. right? Yeah. But the, but the shitty ones, they, it just, they butted heads with an idea that didn't want to work out. Yeah. Do you think Linkin Park could play again? Like, do you think there could be some sort of iteration, reunion? Were you thinking that because of, uh, did you see the Elton John Dodger Stadium show? I I did I wasn't present for it. I didn't I didn't attend it, but I I saw it and there's there's like a part of me that see when I see somebody who's had such a career and like I love so many of their songs and they're still great. Yeah. Like he's he when he played that show, I felt like he wasn't missing a beat. Like yeah. it just was on fire. And yeah. I've seen other artists who are late later in their career and you know, it used to be, they used to be better, yeah. but they're still doing it and I'm glad they are. I don't know with that context, like, I don't know the answers to that for me. Cause I'm not, I don't feel like I'm there. I'm not at that point where I'm like ready to hang it up. Yeah. Um, and the, there are questions to answer in order to figure out what to do next right. on that subject. So totally, you know, we'll see. We'll see. What about you personally? I mean, you are a Grammy award winning songwriter producer performer you've had art exhibits you know you've you've you've, you're a composer you know you've done scores is there something else that you would love to do that's still ahead of you that you're that it's like on your bucket list i have some things yeah i i I don't think i think it you know i'm curious um and i like to like kick the tires on things and like I don't, I'm not afraid to like, you know, make some weird creative uh, decisions and in public. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. I, I, I do love, like, I think in terms of things that I would want to play with, there's a lot of stuff going on with modern technology that opens up, um, some opportunities to make things that are unusual, um, I think that's why I got into, I have like this, this relationship with the label that, um, I'm their creative, excuse me, their community innovation advisor. 
Yes. The CIA. From the CIA. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I named it that. But it's true. Like I I wanna be in the mix on um innovative ideas and creating things that haven't been created or that are are different or just you know, expanding the ways that we can think about um the way we do things as musicians. And with that said, like, you know, we were talking, I think a lot of that role has been like you know, web three type mm-hmm. of things. AI is obviously a big part of the picture now. So we'll see what's up with that. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, it's a tricky thing because like, obviously with both of those, but AI in particular, you've got a lot of, um, there's a lot of places where we're realizing it's, um, it's actually doing artists a disservice. A disservice. Yeah. So yeah. learning to be very careful mm-hmm. there and, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully artists get a whole bunch of protections that they need from, yes, folks that can make those decisions um in the meantime though yeah um um this is a very like i think this moment in time for me i I put out this new song um hoping to put out some more new music and i don't know i like put a game i know know, i I put a game up on my website that's so great that's like a yeah it's like you're like so the game is you go on and you you basically get a it's very creepy it's like a sci-fi horror game you pick a, you're like a critter you get you get this yeah. critter you get this character and you've got to grow it and you're start everyone's starting to realize oh these are not, not like friendly critters these are all they're all <laughs> it's like, like gremlins weird yeah. bloodthirsty little monsters right. so everybody's getting their own little weird bloodthirsty little monster and we're working towards some uh battle mechanics and you know, if if fans stay interested, we can continue to build it. If yeah. they go, okay, that was fun. Like we're done now. Yeah. Then we'll move on to the next thing. It's all good. But you've always sort of been ahead of the curve on all of this kind of stuff. You were early on with Spotify. I remember. Yeah. You've always been. Yeah. Ahead of this. I I was a uh, I was an advisor when Spotify came to the U.S. That was actually really that was really cool because I got a a, a peek under the hood of a very big cultural shift before it happened. Mm-hmm. I got to like meet with Daniel, the founder of Spotify, yes, who of as he was like starting, he was, he, they had had a pretty good success in Europe and they were about to bring it to the U S for the first time. And we were having meetings about like how to do that and whatever. And they were running these like ideas by me, but more, I didn't have any, like it wasn't, uh, for me, it was just like, like, watching this cool thing unfold and seeing what I could learn from it. And I think what's so crazy is that I think it's true that Linkin Park is the most streamed alternative rock band or something. There's some sort of like crazy statistic. I maybe so. I, heard, <laughs> like, I don't know. But like, I hear I these days yeah. I hear like stuff like that and I go, maybe it's true. Yeah, I know. It's I have hard no to idea. But it's pretty cool. I think you were the first band to hit a billion views on YouTube. You know, it's like yeah. all these wild. I think statistics. that one's definitely yeah. true. I, a band. Yeah. Right. Like, there's also like the amazing orange or something like some random <laughs> meme, some like meme account totally. is like, yeah, yeah. Lincoln Park got to a billion. We're at like 700 yeah. billion yeah, now. Exactly. So like, fine. Right. Um, that's not First a real band. number, but yeah, uh, no, it's amazing. Yeah. All right. Let's do deep cuts. Deep cuts. Okay. Name a song, album or artist that changed your life. Public enemy nation of millions. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. I mean, I mean, there was nothing that sounded, I go back to it now. And I think like what people must've thought this was the most abrasive, like 
if I was like the at working at the at a label and somebody played me public enemy enemy at the time, I would have been like, there's everything a everything going on here sounds like a reason that it won't work. Yeah. Like you've got the got you've got super political lyrics, you've got this like alarm sound repetition noise, noise. in the music. Yeah. The music is just like chaos. It's got like metal references. They're like they're uh vocally anti-mainstream. And then you got Flavor Flav like making a joke <laughs> out of everything. Like how's that? It's, doesn't that diffuse all the seriousness of Chuck D's right. like political? He's like telling you all these important things and, and the other guy's making jokes about like, I don't know what. And that's how it somehow became, it was perfect. I loved everything it about it. It was so good. I saw them live at the time and I was like, this is like that's the it. greatest. Yeah, it was like so, such a formative oh, experience. So good. What was your first concert? Um, Anthrax and Public Enemy <sighs> with Primus and Young Black Teenagers. Okay, that wins. Yeah. That's your first concert. It's amazing. Very first concert. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. With my friend Mark that I started oh the band God. with. Yeah. That's so good. Do you have a t-shirt from this concert? Because that would really be I amazing. did. I did. I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. You need to get that back. I know. What is a song you wish you wrote? You know what song is just like, it hits me as like so pitch perfect in terms of it's bigger than itself. Like it's, it's written just right. It's recorded just right. But it's place in the world right now is so special is one more time by Blink. Oh yeah. Such an, like they summed, they summed up this moment in their careers perfectly in a song and that's hard it's really hard to do yeah yeah i thought i heard that and i was like well done guys like you nailed it well when we were talking about trl earlier you both of you guys were on it sort of at the same time yeah. what was your relationship with blink then i just liked them yeah. i didn't i didn't think we we actually weren't running in the same circles very much okay because they were um because of the punk thing and because of like they were so they lean so heavy into like making you laugh. Yeah. And our our aesthetic was much more serious, um, at least on records, on on at the shows and on the and the on the albums. So yeah, we didn't, you know. Also, I have to imagine like we were probably both headlining festivals. So yeah. if they we played on a Saturday night, they played it on a Friday night and right. they were gone by the time we got there. That's interesting. I yeah, think. you were never together. Yeah. That makes sense. We met we met much later on and I love those guys. I, I haven't really hung out with Tom very much. Um, but yeah, Travis and, and Mark, um, I've hung with a few times and like Mark is the kind of guy that like I he's so humble. Yeah. People say that about people, but Mark does, Mark's humble to a point where I I like worry about him. I'm like, don't you, why are you so self-deprecating? And like, he literally doesn't believe it's beyond like um, imposter syndrome at a certain point where like he like literally doesn't believe how great he is at certain things. I'm like, you're incredible. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't get it. It's, it's like the, the Japanese part of me is like, like feels like that's so familiar. Yes. Like, like that's very culturally, it's yeah. very familiar. Yeah. They're, they're special guys. Yeah. They really yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. What is something your fans would be surprised to learn about you? Surprise? I don't think there are any surprises at this point. Are there? Uh, I don't know. What did we? Maybe there's something we did this. 
I tried to make cake pops with one of my kids this week. <laughs> I was going to say, it's something with your kids. Something I tried with your to make kids. cake pops this week. <laughs> and It was challenging. Cake pops are way harder than you think. <laughs> they sucked. I yeah. mean, they tasted fine, but they right. looked the like- The presentation is difficult to achieve. Dude. Yeah. It's going to take a lot more of YouTube research to get a cake pop right. I'll tell you that. What do you hope your kids learn from you? Um, we're big on we're big on gratitude. Yeah. At, at our house, we're big on um, letting the kids explore stuff that they're interested in. Um, I, I mean, my parents were always very cool. I, I didn't have the parents that were like, "You can't do that," or "That's not." you know, art isn't a real job type of of parents. Um, And that was, I thought that was a really good thing. I'm hoping to, I I try to, to maintain some level of that in our, with our kids. Um, But yeah, they, you know, for anybody who has kids, you know, that they're like, there's, there are things that you struggle with as a parent or that they struggle with as a person that aren't, they don't like, come from anywhere they're just like born with it like they're just like they're born with a sense of humor they're also can be born with like a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or like you know i mean not to mention all the other things that you might have to get medication for (laughs) um but like yeah it's like those things are the struggles that you go through where you you know especially when you ever heard that thing about um i don't i'm gonna say it poorly but you get faced with the same problem until you learn how to solve it yes yeah. So like stuff that you know you're not good at or that you struggled with as a kid or that like is like, I don't know, you've got issues with the way you were raised and it's it was a problem then and you haven't figured it out. And now it's showing up with the kids like all that stuff is that is the most that's the probably the biggest challenge to me. Yeah. Being a parent is is being faced with those things. Um, and you got to just I mean, we just realized Anna and I have just realized like. We're definitely not perfect. We're definitely doing our best. That's all and you can do. You can, yeah, that's that's the job. That's all you can do. Yeah. And gratitude is key. I'm, I'm glad to hear gratitude that. We're the same in our every house single, too. Every single day. Every day. We that's the key that, to happiness. That's the question. We do that before bedtime every night. Oh. My, that's the question every night is what are you grateful for that's beautiful. today? And on crappy days, it's a hard one to answer. Yes, of course. That's right. something we should all ask ourselves. Oh my God. For our own sanity. For, for a little kid to, to tell you why they're grateful when they're like, they and their friends are all in a huge fight. Aww. They're just like, nothing. I'm not grateful for yeah. anything. This <laughs> sucks. You're just like, I'm, I, I hear that and I respect yeah. it. Yeah. And I would like you to try anyway. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> what are words you live by? What? There's a, there's a, like a fan meme of me saying this thing that I don't even remember saying about (laughs) something about like something about like be kind and work hard and don't be an asshole or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like I don't remember what it was. I just said it at one point and it became like in our little fan community. Like it's my face with that quote. And I'm kind of glad that's the quote they pulled out. I mean, I don't think my mom would be happy that it's asshole, but um, yeah, the kind part actually to focus in on one piece of it, the older I've gotten, I more, I've realized that the, that being kind, everyone just thinks that is being kind to other people, but you gotta be kind to yourself yes. too. Like it's hard. Like some, I, I, a lot of us 
beat ourselves up over dumb stuff and um, identifying when you're doing that and easing back yeah. as an act of kindness to yourself is like a hard thing to do, but it's a good thing to do. It's essential. Yeah, I think when so. When you're kind to yourself, you can actually be kinder to others. I just saw a clip of Mr. Rogers saying that. Did really? you know? I literally no. just saw it. Yeah. He said this whole thing about like, you know, I know, I know you want to be kind to other people. Aww. That's what you want. But in order to get there, sometimes you have to deal with being kind to yourself first Aww. or else you won't have anything left over to be kind to the other people. So if you're the type of person, like it was always neat because Aww. the way he did it with like, the strategic way that he structured it was almost like, well, I know you want to be kind to them. So right. as a function of like doing that, yeah. be kind to yourself. Well, I always wanted to be Mr. Rogers, so I guess I it mean, works out. Oh. I feel like he was a genius. Genius. Total genius. Trailblazer. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful human being. Yeah, oh. for sure. Mike, thank you. This thank was you. really a treat. We're going to end on Mr. Rogers. We're going to end on Mr. Rogers. Yeah, that's what we do here. <laughs> yeah. It's love and rock and roll. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thank so you. good. By the way, for the record, I truly admire Mr. Rogers, and I will gladly accept any association with him. We all need that loving, nurturing energy now more than ever. It is now time for my sound advice, new music you need to know on the Allison Hagendorf Show playlist. Kicking off this week is the latest from today's guest, Mike Shinoda. This is the first solo song Mike has done in a while where he writes, produces, and plays all the instruments himself. This song certainly marks a new era for Mike Shinoda, and I'm here for it. Listen to his latest, Already Over. Also out this week is the solo debut from the legendary Mick Mars of Motley Crue. It's his first song since his recent retirement from the band, and it comes from his upcoming solo album, The Other Side of Mars, out February 23rd, 2024. Mick says, I wanted to do something that was just big and mean. I am what I am, and nobody else can do it. And like everyone, I've got a limited number of years, so I'm going to do all I can to do a lot of stuff. Check out this banger from Mick Mars, Loyal to the Lie. Next up is the band Dirty Honey. Their album Can't Find the Breaks is out today, and they are currently on their headlining Can't Find the Breaks tour after supporting Guns N' Roses on the road. They are part of the new school of classic-sounding blues-based rock and cite bands like Aerosmith, The Black Crows, and Muse as influences. I'm loving this one off of their album. It's a gorgeous, timeless ballad. Check out Dirty Honey's Coming Home Ballad of the Shire. That's my sound advice this week. Search for the Allison Hagendorf Show playlist wherever you listen to music. Thank you so much, as always, for being part of the Allison Hagendorf Show. New episodes drop every Friday, so make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch the show on YouTube. I would love to hear from you, so please like, comment, rate, review, whatever you're feeling, and reach out to me on socials at Allie Hagendorf. I would love to connect with you. Let me know who I should interview next and who I should feature on my sound advice. Thanks again. I'll see you next week. And remember, you're a rock star. 